Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, welcome back to Pop Parenting. This week, Avram and Ellie are fired up and rewatching the film Footloose and discussing death, dancing, and divorce. They're asking what happens when parents try to control their children's every move and is that focusing on the wrong issue. Here we go. Okay, can you hear me? Okay, Ellie, I am fired up. Uh, I am fired up about this movie. So I'm telling you right now, I've okay. only had one coffee. and uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how two. many... Uh... How many problems I had with this movie after watching? <laughs> I was like, Whoa. I am fired up. All right, let's do this. What's the what's the fire? My God, I've got so many notes. What's that? I gotta I gotta get my notes over here. I got too many. I'm looking at this like I'm like, we don't have till four p.m. Because <laughs> we could go that late. Are we gonna have to maybe do two episodes on this movie? You know, I swear, when the, when this movie was recommended, Ellie, um, <clears throat> I was like, eh, like I I hadn't seen Footloose. Honestly, I saw Footloose in the theater, right? Right. And it was yeah, a good film. Too. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a bad film. It was, it was a good film, but it wasn't like Pretty in Pink had a huge impact on me as a teenager. The Breakfast Club had a huge impact on me. Footloose. You know, I'm not from a huge though. I remember, like everyone was bananas over this movie when it came out. All my friends were like Kevin Bacon and the dancing and Laurie Singer so awesome, and people loved this movie. It's very interesting, yeah. So um, I went into this, and it's a lesson I learned in my life over and over again, over and over again. And the lesson is this: I walk in expecting something, and I get something else, and and I mean good and bad. So. Um, this happens with clients sometimes. I'll have a new referral and I'll think, oh, this is going to be whatever, either very interesting or it's going to be very complicated, you know, right. based on like a, my five minute intake call. Uh, <laughs> and then two sessions in, I realized whatever I thought was going to happen uh, is not happening. Um, Footloose, I thought, you know, okay, so we'll have to drag it out. Like, you know, the theme of like dancing and not dancing. But oh my God, from the first, like, you know, I'll tell you something that's interesting. I started watching the film and I posted that little, you know, PR for the, uh, for our talk today on Facebook after watching maybe 30 minutes of the, or 40 minutes of the film. Um, and then I saw your, uh, your update. And by that time, when I saw your update about the film, about um, the tragic death um, and how the sort of a communal grief that's still going on in the community, I was at that part in the movie and, and uh, I thought you captured the essence of what was happening in the movie much better than my post did. My post sort of focused on the the beginning uh, stuff around um, the church and censorship right. and, and that. I, I thought you did a, a much better job. But the but then if you keep watching the film, more themes are. I mean, it was like theme after theme after the, the marriage and divorce and triangles and collective grief and insular communities and so oh my god I took so many notes <laughs> yeah I have to say it's interesting like now that we've been doing this for a while I just can't watch a movie or a show in the same way you really just see so much of the intricacy of what are the structures and systems that are underneath all of these relationships and why is this happening and I think you know, in some, especially in um, these earlier movies, the unintentional, um, you know, I don't think they were thinking through all of the psychology of every character when they yeah. made these films. Um, but when we look at it, it's just so rich with the dynamics of the times, um, you know, so I, yeah, I think it's such an interesting, it's a, such a multi-layered film for like a piece of candy. Uh, it's so interesting. Should I give like a quick overview in case anybody hasn't seen it in a while? Not yet, though. We have to address something. Okay, go. This is part of my fire. <laughs> okay, Ellie, Great. do you okay. remember? I got to pull this up here because uh, I'm going to forget. Have you ever heard of or do you remember something called the fil the filthy fifteen? 
Mm-mm. Now, I never heard about the Filthy 15. Okay. I'm going to give you a year. Let's see if it jogs your memory. 1985, the Filthy 15. Was no? Was this certain songs that were on the radio? I do remember. This had to do with probably like Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, let me see. Hold on. Is Frankie Goes to I think you're right, actually. I think like he. Relax. I, hold on. Is Frankie, does Frankie go, uh, uh, no, no. Interesting. Interesting. That song is not. Here are the songs that are part of the Filthy 15. Are you ready? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Now, now some of these are filthy. Look, all I'm doing is I'm holding it in the context of like WAP. What's out now in terms of music? That Cardi B, Megan the Stallion song, WAP. You, you don't want to know. Okay. But when they the Filthy Fifteen in 1985 will probably be in stark contrast to what is played reg- regularly on the radio right now. So here we go. The Filthy Fifteen. Uh, and Ellie, you know, yeah, anyway, I have, a, I have, a, we, oh, we can have so much fun with this. Okay. The number one, Prince, Darling Nikki. Of filthy. Course. It's a little filthy. Um, Sheena Easton, Sugar Walls. I yeah. didn't know that song. Yeah. Uh, Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive. Interestingly, interestingly, Judas Priest in 1985, I don't think Rob Halford came out as gay in 1980. I don't think anyone knew. If you remember oh, Judas Priest, they were dressed in like, yeah, like they were totally leather and like yeah. metal. And he came out as, you know, uh, as homosexual. I forget like in the early 2000s or anything. But anyways, wow. so like, Eat Me Alive. Vanity. I don't even know who Vanity is, but oh, Van- yeah. was Vanity related? Were they connected with Prince? Yeah. Vanity sounds familiar. So they had a song called um, Strap On Robbie Baby. I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> Motley Crue. Bastard. This is the weirdest mix. I know. Metal and total like soul R&B stuff. Like ACDC. Wow. Let me put my love into you. Now, what's interesting about ACDC is that I like it. I didn't even know they had a song called that. So I don't know how that made the Filthy 15. Tipper Gore must have been like going through the back catalog because I got it. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to remember what album that would have been on. But yeah, that's for no sure clue. like a B-side somewhere. Okay. Now, check. Now, I'm going to tell you. Now, I'm going to say one to you right now that makes no sense to me. Twisted Sister, We're Not Going to Take It, made the Filthy 15. Oh, I think it didn't it have a curse word in it. Nope, that's not what the the um, the the flagging was for violence. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, Madonna, I'm just going to go through them quick now. Madonna, dress you up. Yeah. Wasp, animal. There's a, a tagline that is we're not going to say that. Def Leppard, high and dry for drug and alcohol use. <laughs> Merciful fate into the coven for a cult. Black Sabbath, trash, oh. drugs and alcohol. Mary Jane Girls, never heard of the Mary Jane Girls, in my house. Venom, yeah. Venom, very scary band, by the way, from the 80s, freaked me out, possessed. Right. And here, you won't believe this. I can't believe this. I don't even think you will know what this means. Are you ready? Okay. Sit down for this one. Cindy Lauper, can you get one of her hits? Can you guess which one? Oh, girls just want to have fun. Nope. I don't know which one. Shebop. Oh, sorry. That's the one that I was thinking about. Yes. Yes. Shebop. Yeah, I remember there was a big controversy when that song was out. What the hell's a Shebop? I never even knew what a Shebop was. I thought it was dancing. <laughs> Anyways, we're not we're not going to get into it, but Shebop. So now, here, now, Ellie, here's what's interesting. Okay, here's what's interesting. Footloose came out in 1987, I believe. Mm-hmm. Tipper Gore, and they called them the, I think they called them the Washington Wives. Yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Came out with something called, um, if you remember, uh, I'm sure you remember this, uh, the the Parents Music Resource Center. Yep. If you remember when you that bought was an all album. all the warnings. That was all the warnings on the exactly. CD. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You had the little warning. In fact, a little bit of Jane's Addiction trivia, when Perry Farrell um, uh, designed the cover work, the, the three naked um, uh, papier-mâché dolls for yeah. um, a Ritual to Habitual, um, they, uh, the record company didn't want to put out, out the album. And so he begged them then, fine, you don't want to do that. I want you to put out just a white cover with the warning. He wanted the warning because he knew it would sell because what ended up happening, it, it, it flew yeah, back in their course. face. Of course it did. Albums would sell if it had the little black, um, warning. Now here's a question for you. This is where I'm going with this. Okay. It is 2020. We look at a film like Footloose. We look at the filthy 15 and we laugh, we laugh. We think, ah, oh, those backward, uptight right 
Christian synagogue going, uh, right? That's how we see, come on, let's be honest. We watch Footloose and we go, oh my, we are so much more evolved, okay? Okay, today's news. Today, today is? November 19th, 2020. This is from the BBC. My favorite Christmas song. What's your favorite Christmas song? Come on. Even though uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, um, what's it called? I'm trying to remember. Okay, I'll just name one off the top. Um, okay. White Christmas. Oh, that's a good one. I like that song. Um, my favorite Christmas song is the Pogues' "Fairy Tale in New York." Yeah, that's a great song. I just love that song, and the video is amazing. Yeah. Uh, who who plays? Is Kevin? Uh, who plays the D D D Dylan? Um, who plays the actor in that? Uh, the cop, uh, Matt Dill. Uh, oh, I forget his name. Anyways, the BBC will no longer play Fairy Tale in New York, 2020, November 19th. Why? Let's let's forget about why. It's not important why. Okay. We can get into that after this call. Okay. It is how many years after the Filthy 15? We are now what right. uh, 85, so it's uh, what yeah. 30 years, something like that. Right. Right. 30 something odd years. 25, yeah. It is 2020, and we are still banning things that upset us. And we don't only ban them for us. So we, I don't, you know, it's not just like I come home to my family and say, in this house, we can't do this. I in 2020, we'll say, not only are we going to, you know, allow individual choice in terms of what comes into your homes or your ears, we need to protect everybody. Everybody, because a certain subsection of people is. Um, upset by something. Anybody right. who thinks we are so evolved, whenever you get too caught up in human beings and evolution, one of the things that I think is always important to remember is that we are still at core human beings and we get reactive and we over respond. It's happening right now. It's happening on campuses. Ask any professor on campus. It's happening all over. And in some ways, I would say, I, I, I will stand by this. It is worse in 2020 in many cases than it was in the 80s because if you ban Motley Crue, ooh, ooh, you're banning Motley Crue. <laughs> I don't know what kind of cultural impact that has. Right. I'm going to say one thing and then hopefully my fire will dial down and I'll bring back my therapeutic <laughs> neutrality. I spoke with a physician. I'm not going to say what subspecialty and I'm not going to say what the issue is. It doesn't make a difference. I spoke with a physician who no longer teaches medical residents. Let me repeat this. They will no longer teach medical students and residents. Why? Because the research that he or she does caused her to get so much blowback in her evaluations about being, doesn't make a difference, but being accused of some sort of horrible thing that it is not worth the stress and the possible doxing online. So what does that mean? What that means, in 2020, there is a bunch of medical students and residents that are not being trained in a certain type of research, not being exposed to a certain research. These people will be working with right. parents and patients. They will have no clue about it. facts and data on a certain thing because we are creating a generation of people that if, if I am upset by something, even if it's factual, even if it's based on research, we have to get rid of that thing because my feelings override your facts. Right. It is a very, very troubling thing that is happening right now. This is not just about music anymore. So in some ways, Footloose, one could say, was even more progressive than what we have going on in certain sectors right here in yes, 2020. It is maddening. Okay, I think I feel a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think it's an interest you know there's a lot of interesting conversations around that now I think the lack of free speech in many places I think the interesting thing though is on the other hand we have the internet and the dark web where there's all kinds of unsavory things being spoken about and traded and done um, so what happens is like these things don't go away they just go underground and once they're underground, you can't track them anymore. So I think like, you know, it's interesting in the, in the film, um, the mother addresses this, you know, she says, to, he says, well, dancing causes fornication. And she's like, uh, you know, like that, they're looking at each other anyways. 
Like, why is it the dancing that you're focusing on? You think they're not gonna be like they're teenagers. They're gonna be attracted to each other. Dancing is just one of the many things that where they're gonna figure out how to move with that. But it was interesting because she was, I felt she was pointing to this particular thing. Like it's not going to go away no matter how much you try to control the environment. Um, and if you it's just also, going underground, which it did. And and by the way, uh, just to piggyback on your point, when I forget her name, but the uh, the preacher's daughter, when she takes Kevin Beacon and she said, "I want to show you something," and they and in the train station they wrote mm -hmm. poetry and they took all the books that were and they put them all over, you know, for safekeeping away from the prying eyes of of, of the community. Yeah. Um, you know, that was their dark web. Right. right. That was there, you know, um, so you're, you're right. It, it doesn't go anywhere. And one one could say and I've, I've always said this to parents, if you know, and we can. Oh, my, there's so many themes in this film. But, <laughs> you know, if you're going to if you need to kick your kid out of the house, which unfortunately I, I've had to, um, especially back in Vancouver with certain um, uh, extreme cases of violence and addiction, yeah. uh, if you have to ask your kid to leave, you have to just understand that once you ask your kid to leave, you have no control at that point. Okay. Now, now, any influence you thought you might have right. um, when they're at home, you have none now when they're yep. out of your house. So as soon as you ban things, now you have now you have literally no control in terms of having an open conversation with your child about values and principles, right? relationships, feelings, you, all that's gone now because it's going to go underground and that's right. where the conversations will happen. Right. So we have to be very, very, very careful when we do this kind of stuff. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, put forward something. I think it's true. I don't think it's so controversial. Um, I believe the minute you start banning things in this sort of a way, um, you promote it. I mean, I can't see any other way. You, you promote it and you promote it in a maladaptive way. Right. Um, so uh, having said all of that, are we like almost done? No, we're not done. Okay. <laughs> um, Ellie, can you can you move your mic? Uh, I think when you're moving, the microphone's rubbing against. Um... Yeah. Let me slide it over. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, Ellie, why don't you introduce the... Uh... <laughs> we're already into it. Introduce the film and then we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, okay, so on one foot, let's see, Footloose on one foot is the story of Kevin Bacon, who plays Ren. He moves with his mother, who um, his father has recently left. So they move to this small town in rural United States. I don't think they ever say exactly which state it's in. Um, to stay, I think, with her sister and brother-in-law. And he starts to go to the local high school. What he encounters when he gets there is a very small, very Christian community that has been that is being um, run basically spiritually by the pastor in the town. And after a an accident five years previous, where there were kids in the town that were killed in a car accident after drinking and driving, the town started to ban anything that would get these kids into what was considered serious trouble. So they described it like they, they banned drinking, they banned dancing, they banned music, they banned everything possible. And eventually over the five years, it wasn't just a ban, it became a sin to do all of those things. And so he meets the preacher's daughter, who's like a real sort of wild cut, you know, she's very like rebellious against her father. And it ends up that it was one of the kids that died was her brother. And so we see this whole thing play out where Ren wants to have there be wants there to be a dance in the school because he's a dancer and he's into music. And the pushback between the town and their values and what they're trying to hold on to and him trying to, you know, advocate for for freedoms. I think that's on one foot. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I want to ask you what for you was most striking, um, what moved you the most. Uh, sometimes when we do these podcasts, I just find that's sometimes the most interesting, you know, what moved me, what moved you, mm. uh, you know, and then we can get into the weeds of it. Um, is there anything that stood out for you when the film finished? What did you walk away with, Ellie? Because you said you actually, you started today's talk, you said you were 
um, disturbed or something? You said something. Oh, yeah. There's one part of the film that isn't necessarily the main driving plot. Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, go for it. Is it, is it when he beats her up? Yeah. When fighting? I, yeah. I had, a, I had like a, um, uh, you know, when you look back at certain eras and you just get like a, yeesh, like, and no follow-up, no police, no nothing. The, the film wasn't even about that. It was like a side parentheses to whatever was happening in the story was this ex-boyfriend just beats her up in the street. <laughs> and like, she's got a now, black eye and like the priest you know, doesn't go after him. Yeah. Now I have to say though, one of the things about the film that was interesting is that she gives it to him pretty good too. Right. You know, um, and um uh, yeah. So I just, I, I thought right. that was an she interesting. She does, but he hits her first. Yeah. And he hits and her last. So, I mean, the, la the yeah. last good, I think, punch or something oh, yeah. or whatever it's, is, it's is him on her. It's a brutal fight. It's yeah. really hard to watch. And so, for but you me, know, what's funny, Ellie, in, in the eighties, I don't think it was brutal. Like, I think if no. I was watching 84, it would be like, you know, not that men should hit women, but it was like culturally kind of like, it's not okay, but it's not, but in 2020, it really offends one's sensibilities when you see right. that. First of all, I mean, it's just, it's so unacceptable. It would never, it would never make it into a movie. Um, right. And we just have so many uh, things in place right now um, to deal with domestic violence, spousal abuse. Um, yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction you did. I was like, wow, that's a- Yeah, really, it really, I didn't remember that, which also to me was interesting because that does speak culturally to the time that I wouldn't even remember that part of the movie. Like, it was just so like, wow, okay. Like the guy was a jerk. Like, it's just, woo. Well, you know, it's, it's like, you know, Ellie, it's interesting, right? Because um, uh, one of my favorite uh, old, old comedies is something my Zadie just loved. And it was The Honeymooners. I mean, my Zadie loved The Honeymooners, loved right. Jackie Gleason. And I can, I can piss in my pants watching The Honeymooners. <laughs> but whenever Jackie Mason turns to his wife, puts his fist in her face and goes, Alice, to the moon. I still can laugh a bit, but I yeah. cringe too. Totally. Because that would just not fly at right. all right now. Right. Um, anyway, so look, this is, you know. Um, so that was the, yeah. that was one of the places where I just, you know, you, I just had a visceral reaction and I was thinking about it afterwards. Like, I don't understand. Like, is that how things were that no one would go to the police? No one would, the father wouldn't say anything that he sees his daughter's face all bloodied and bruised. Like I just had so many questions after that. Um, but I actually was also very moved by the mother in the film. Um, I was very moved by- um, What's her name, by the way? This is the second time she's appeared in one of our Diane films. Weist. Diane, Diane Weist. Yes, West. she's fantastic. Yes. Um, actually my kids watched the beginning of the movie with me. And they were laughing because there's a character in a, a show they like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that's apparently obsessed with Diane Weist. So they were like, oh, that's who that is. I was like, that's yeah, so funny. that's who that is. Um, I just thought her character was beautiful. I thought it was interesting. You, I felt like I could see multi-layers of her trying to process. She was almost like the conscience of the film. In I was thinking ways. like in many ways, there's a few uh, wise elders, but I yeah. think that she, she, um, uh, her and that, um, I don't know what you'd call him, the boss. The guy, yeah. The guy the that farm. owned his own, the place where he worked in the mill, the guy that yeah. owned the mill. Yeah. And the pastor, I mean, we can get into that, but I mean, I think there's actually, a, the film does a good job depicting different archetypes of wise elders. I think right. she, but her character is the most consistent mm. in how she depicts, I, I think, a wise elder. Please yeah. continue. Yeah, so I think that those were the sort of the big standouts. I think, um, yeah, I, 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 I think the relationships in the town were so interesting. You know, the kind of good guys, bad guys, that the kids, even though they were banned from doing this stuff, that they were both afraid and excited, you know? So I think there were just a lot of interesting things there. Those were really the pieces that stuck out to me. Oh, the other part that stuck out for me was the burning of the books, that that became the red line, that that was the line where like you crossed too far. And I think as Jews watching that, that it holds a very different, um, it has echoes of meaning, I think, that you wouldn't find maybe the same way in other communities. 
Um, and if you've ever been to Yad Vashem in Israel, where it has this whole part of the display, the whole part of the museum is around burning of books. And I think it was Elie Wiesel that said this very um, impactful, intense thing about that, like where you start to burn books, eventually you'll burn the bodies. Like, so seeing that burning of the books, I was, it, you know, it resonates differently from a Jewish viewpoint, I think, than when I saw it. So, so those were sort of the standouts for me. What about you? Well, I want to respond to a couple of things you said before I jump into this, um, uh, but let's just touch on uh, the problem with you and me when we do this is that I can go on and because there's so many, but I want to keep it focused because I'm trying to think of the listener too, uh, who's, who'd be listening to this podcast going, they're all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want to touch on one thing you just said, because I, I made a note of this. Here's a question. Here's a question. When what are the conditions by which the preacher would have burned the books with the community? And when is the conditions where the preacher has a, the conscious thought to not burn the books? You see, I think in the film, what you're suggesting, and I'm not so sure I see this, is that, wow, that was a red line for the preacher. I'm not so sure that's true. What I mean right. by that is, if you think about when that scene happened, what predates, what, what happens before that scene? You see, because I'm going to wager, because we're going through it right now in 2020, Ellie. Let me ask you something. Where's the line? What's the line in 2020 where we should stop banning books and medical talks? And do you know what that right. line is? Because I sure as hell don't know where that right. line is. I don't think anyone knows where that line right. is. Okay. So, okay. The preacher, he said that for him was a, uh, um, a bridge too far. Well, was it? Let me ask you. If that was, let's say, go back in the film at the beginning of the film. Would the preacher- There were indicators all through the film- that he already had a real issue with the taking books out of the library. Because remember, there's a whole conversation that goes on between him and this other Shaw guy, where he's like, we have to take that book out. It's corruptive. And he was like, "Who? when did you decide that it was corruptive? I thought that, that was more in the middle of the film, though, Ellie. I thought at the that right- That was before the book burning. No, it was. It was before right. the book burning. But it, right at the beginning of the film- Oh, when they mentioned Slaughterhouse-Five. That and also the, the the preacher's opening scene, the fire yeah. and brimstone speech yeah. does not seem he seems like the kind of guy that would bring the fire and the brimstone. Right. To, to. right. So um, my here's my take on that scene, because it's a powerful scene. And I think this really this is why I love this film so much that now that uh, in um, so many years later, I think that scene where he 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 uh, that red line was crossed. I think that is an example of what I see when I work with families where a parent could finally hear their child and a child could finally hear their parent. Right. And what was once a behavior or a thought or a feeling, right, that was acceptable, even justified, no longer can be. But to get to that place, to get to the place of this thing violates a principle for me, you have to go through uh, as Thomas, um, oh, what's his name, uh, Ellie, the myth guy, Thomas, um, he writes all that Jungian psychology. Oh, it's going to kill me. He's a Jungian, he's a famous guy, talks about myth. Thomas More, Thomas More. Um, right. What Thomas More talks about, sort of the, um, the dark night of the soul, that we all have to go through in our own relationships and our families, a yeah. very dark forest. We don't know where we're going yet. And that's how people enter therapy. It's like, I don't know what the hell's going to happen here. I don't even think it's going to work, but but the the alternatives are so unsettling to me. I'm going to go through this very uh, un uncharted territory, and hopefully, when I come out of the forest on the other side, I'm a different person and I can see differently. And I think that this preacher had to go through that. Um, so here's my argument, I guess. Mm. It wasn't until the preacher realized that he lost one son to death and he was on the verge of losing his other child. Right. I think it was that um, existential fear about losing his daughter to cut off that something awakened in him that um, allowed him to see differently about what was happening in this town. And we can talk on collective grief and we can talk because I really think that's, what, that's what's fueling all this kind of stuff. Right. So anyways, that, that's my, that, that's what I would say that, that, that like all human beings, uh, we will burn books and burn books until we have our own sort of um, eyes wide open uh, uh, experience of 
um, what are we sacrificing here and for what principle? Um, yeah. And have we gone too far? And he did. He was quite clear. He thought that we're going too far. And I think it was a who it was said a couple of different ways. It was his daughter, Kevin Beacon. A couple of different times in the film, you hear someone say some version of you can't save everybody. You can't bring your son back. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this isn't about this. It's about the grief of your son. There's a few times in the film, right? It's like yeah. right in the middle near to the late of the film that that motif comes up and up again, that we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're yeah. focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. And Ellie, that's like 95% of my practice, that it's good people, anxious people, worried people focus on the wrong thing. Right. And I think what you mean when you're saying, like, just to clarify, focusing on the right thing is they keep focusing on the liquor and the dancing and the rock and roll and all that stuff. What they're not focusing on is everyone is in a grieving process and the level of anxiety in that town around trying to protect their kids. And so we keep addressing the fact that they can't dance, but really what needs to be addressed is like this, is that what you mean by focusing on the wrong thing? Yeah, like if you think about, you know, people, a lot of clients will come into my office and they have OCD type symptoms, right? So they uh, they have some sort of obsessive compulsive thing about either checking the doorknob or, I mean, what's that about? What's the focus about, right? It's a way of, you have all this anxiety in you. So you're all anxious about something. You can't do anything with it. And you don't even know what the problem is, but you can check your lock 25 times right that you could do and it does sort of regulate your anxiety because you feel as if you're doing something or right. people who bite their nails it's like what what is that what is the function of biting one's nails well it does do something you remove the nail like it, it actually but the internal state of anxiety whatever you're anxious about if you can't do anything about that you will focus on something else and feel as if you're bringing some semblance of control over your life. It's the same thing with dieting. Yeah. It's the same thing. All I, remember, these... I remember one of my friends a long time ago, we were, we were talking about different things we were working on. And I, and I had said to her, because she was biting her nails, and I said, have you ever noticed what happens in the space between wanting to bite your nails and actually biting your nails? And what would you find if you looked at that space? And it was like, she called me, I think a week later, she was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how anxious I was. I didn't realize, because what was in between that space was worry and anxiety. And like, in, in, instead of dealing with the feelings, she was biting her nails. And it was such an interesting man, like manifestation of what you're talking about. Like, what are well, we focusing on? And look, we're coming back, Ellie, you're, you're, that was actually, um, that, that was uh, very interesting, your interaction with your friend, because it touches on that old line that comes up time and time again by um, Viktor Frankl, between right. stimulus and response, there's a space, and that space is our choice of freedom. Now, the thing, of course, here is that that's, that's half the battle. So your friend, to be able to stop and look at the space and go, wow, I'm so anxious, what a lot of my clients will say to me is, and now what? Right, or what space? <laughs> you know, so the, so I mean, it's, it, there is no, um, there is no quick fix solutions to any of this. I just mm -hmm. think it's important to point out that um, um, focusing on the wrong thing means so many of my clients, for example, will come in and they are worried about their kids' depression. The mm -hmm. depre we've talked about this all the time in JFI talks. Mm -hmm. This, the adolescent symptom is a symptom. It is not the problem in the family. Right. It is not the problem. And it's the same thing here. We're, we're into it, right, Ellie? We're, we're into it. We're going, right? We're going. We're going. Let's so let's, let's go. Okay. <laughs> so here's something interesting, controversial. I didn't come up with this. I heard this from a, an analyst, a guy in his um, late 60s, psychoanalyst, Montreal. A young, a young kid, teenager, maybe he was 17, was snowboarding and died in a snowboarding uh, accident. But extreme, extreme... Um, uh, you know, snowboarding stuff. Um, every time that he would do these um, tricks, uh, death or maiming or something was very possible. It's the same thing I saw in Vancouver, downhill mountain biking. I saw guys do stuff, Ellie, women right. too. That was like, every time they would launch off a ramp at the, into the North Shore forest, you could die. I what was watching a skiing thing the other day, like where they do those huge moguls and flips. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even watch this anymore. Like, why do they want to do this? So one of the things that this analyst said 
which I thought was interesting. I'm not so sure if I agree with it or not. I have I keep thinking about this, but I I have my own sort of systems take on this. But his thing was the he said he often will hear parents say, "My child died doing what they love," but what he hears is an adolescent who has a death wish. Mm. That there is something about the extreme the extremeness of the sport yeah. that they are um they are playing with death for some function it's not just a hobby there is something and um i've I haven't thought about his line because i think there's something there when she you know take the woman in the uh what's her name what was her uh, name the preacher's daughter in the film ariel ariel yeah ariel. glory singer ariel so there is two scenes one is the pickup truck where she yep. is holding on and the semi is coming and it's only by one could say the grace of god or luck that she gets pulled into the truck otherwise she would have been a pancake on the road because that's yeah. a semi okay. yeah my kids eyebrows were like through their through the top of their head watching. yeah it's a pretty intense scene yeah um there's that and then there's the other scene with the train yeah when she stands on the tracks mm -hmm. so i let me ask you what how do you make sense of that I mean, you were a young, you were a, a young whippersnapper teenager once. I mean, did any of your friends, do you know of any of your friends who flirted with death in that way? Yeah, look, I hung out with a very radical, artistic um, crowd who had a lot of different issues. And certainly, look, I remember walking home by myself from downtown at four in the morning and thinking like, huh, this is really pushing the envelope. Like I could just, you know, or getting into like someone's car, you know, hitchhiking, like doing things that I knew were putting me in a dangerous position. And I think that we all had different reasons for that, but they all centered around looking for clear, real boundaries was one of them. We we're trying to figure out where really is the line? What's the line where that's just clearly not okay? I think it had to do with a um, need for a certain type of attention that that maybe we weren't getting, like we weren't feeling heard. So maybe you'll hear me now, you know? So I think there was a lot of different levels to that type of, it, a lot of it was attention seeking and you could see that with her. I don't think in the film, she really understands the level of danger um, but I think she understands the, the depth of her need for it to be seen and heard and understood, like you've said. And look, she's coming from a situation where her brother's dead. So what's going to get her parents' attention? Like if she potentially is in harm's way, if she could die, if she, you know, all of those things. Like, I'm not sure her tendencies came out of a death wish as much as a deep desire to be seen and heard and, and related to in some way. That's my take on it. Yeah, I think I think you've nailed it. I think that one of the um, <clears throat> I think that pretty much sums up what um, what I saw too. Uh, you know, when I I saw those scenes, I, I saw that um, as a maladaptive way of uh, her uh, dealing with grief, not dealing yeah. with the grief of her dead brother, but dealing with the collective grief because grief is a funny thing, right? This, this really touches on one of the the deepest concepts of family systems theory that that um, even people who understand it on a cursory level don't I, i'm not sure if they catch this point yeah. the thing that bowen was trying to convey is that from a psychoanalytic perspective analysts right see things in the individual so there is something in your conflict between your id and your super ego or something some unconscious conflict with your 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 mother when you were a baby that's the attachment idea there's something at an individual level that is that is um that you're trying to deal with internally um and that is your suffering and you have right. to do something with that in therapy or something yeah. Bowen came along and said, you know, <clears throat> and this is the analogy I, I, I often use with my clients who have a decent sense of humor and don't get too offended. <laughs> I often say, you know, what Bowen was trying to convey is what I call the horrible fart theory. And it goes something like this. You're in a room with five friends and one of your friends makes a really horrible fart and you go, that's disgusting. And they look at you and they go, it's mine. It has nothing to do with you. Hmm. And, and this idea that we're a part of systems that one person's grief or unresolved grief will impact you in profound ways, even if you're not grieving. Right. 
So you have this entire town who lost whatever it was. And by the way, you know, I was thinking of when I was watching this film, a uh, very similar situation, very different context. What's that town, Ellie? In, uh, yeah, I know. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking yeah. of. Uh, where was it? Saskatchewan or? Yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, Alberta, I think. Yeah. If you if you would go there now, okay, I guarantee you that if you would do some research, the level of addiction, divorce, um, uh, depression, you'd see symptoms popping up all over in different ways. Some okay. would be coping better. Some would be doing worse. And in this uh, instance, Ariel um, uh, is living in the shadow of her dead brother. It's an extremely challenging thing. I've worked with families like this when you're the surviving sibling in many ways, because everything starts to hover around the dead child in a way. And it's very difficult. Um, I'm thinking actually of a situation of uh, a young, uh, a young, I'm going to change some details here uh, for confidentiality purposes. Um, a young woman who was adopted into a family uh, one year after the biological um, sister died. Okay. So a, a, a a child dies at the age of 12 of an illness. The parents are just beyond grief. They try to have a child um, uh, naturally, biologically, they can't, whatever, and they adopt. And this child is adopted into a family where everything is hovered around the same gender, same okay. everything. And for the rest of their lives, they, they don't know this, by the way, but everything right. is oriented about replacing the child who died. Right. It's good people. People think, oh, that's a monster. No, it's not a monster. Right. We're not monsters. It is just good people trying to deal with grief. There is right. maladaptive ways of dealing with grief. And there is what one could say healthier ways of dealing with grief. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. Uh, that's how I saw what Ariel was doing as well. It was her own cry of help. It was her own cry of, I am not seen here. She's a creative, vivacious, she's got big dreams and she right. lives in a family where everything now is hunkered down and protect. Right. She can't find herself in that. And there are moments in the film where you see her trying to talk to her dad. You know, she said, how come you only ever talk to me when I'm doing something wrong? But then she comes to try to like talk to him or just have a conversation with him. And he's, he's busy, he's doing his work. You know, and, and you really see those subtle moments where the only attention she does actually get is when she's being crazy or dangerous. And so it sort of reinforces that behavior for her also, I think. So interesting. So one of the things that's interesting here to, to think about, because I think this was done, um, I think this was done very well, granted, um, uh, within the confines of a film. Okay, but what I see in my office would be in the confines over maybe a year or two um, is, and here's a question. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this, Ellie. Um, what was the change? What changed in the family system where the preacher uh, was able to let go of the over-functioning? You know, we talk about that, right, Ellie, on these podcasts? Under-functioning yeah. and over-functioning. This is a preacher. And by the way, speak to any rabbi, any priest, any imam, they are probably over-functioners. They're probably eldest children and they're probably over-functioners. <laughs> they take on the yoke of the community, mm. right? And it buckles their family life or it buckles their own uh, health, physical health or uh, emotional health because they are taking on the yoke of, of everything. It, it is, a, it, it is yeah. maladaptive. Yeah, I can't believe how many people after the passing of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, Zichron Livracha, how many people were so blown away by the words um, from his kids and from the nieces and nephews, how so many people said the same thing, which was that he was equally a loving, present, caring father as he was a loving, caring, present leader. And how, and how many people commented on like, wow, that's, that's not so common. Um, it was really quite something how many people were moved by that. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know his work that well. I've only heard him speak um, whenever I've seen him, uh, you know, um, being interviewed on, on the BBC or something right. or about Israel. What's interesting about Rabbi Sachs, um, and this might be to a fault for me because he never, he never drew me in the way some other rabbis do. I'm, I'm, I'm he was more... a, I, my, all my students in my class know I, I always referred to him as Rabbi Sachs, my Rabbi Fresh. So 
<laughs> just to right. be transparent about that. <laughs> so I, I never got the sense when he spoke that um, he was trying to convince you of his position and he needed you to yep. adopt his thinking no, he um, to like be validated. That. He seemed very solid in the position he, he was in, but there's enough elasticity for you to be you. It's a very, very rare thing yeah. for clergy to be that way. Um, so I agree with you. Very rare uh, mm -hmm. to see that. Um, now, so my question, okay, so he, so here we go. So clearly this preacher was not a Rabbi Sachs, the beginning of, uh, of the film. Um, and by the way, I think there is a time and a place for fire and brimstone, whether it's, um, you know, a leader of a country or um, a general um, or a parent. I do think there's a, a time and a place right. for, ah, we've got a, the house is on fire. Right. But when it's every weekend, Right. Right. So question, Ellie, what, in your opinion, in, in terms of what you saw, started to change the preacher? What forces, what happened that he went from a rigid, my way or the highway thing to being able to hear his wife, his daughter, and ultimately Ren? Yeah, that was so beautiful at the end where they had that conversation. Um, I think... Well, look, I think one of the catalysts was when he slaps his daughter, that scene in the kitchen where she says, you never listen to me. And then his wife stand, like says something. And then she calls him out saying, well, you don't listen to her. Why would you listen to me? And he slaps her. And the, for him, that was almost like his book, personal book burning. It seemed like that was the line for him. Um, but I don't know, maybe I missed something earlier. I got it. Well, you actually just raised something that I think we need to touch on because it is a perfect example of something we have talked about, the clinical triangle mm -hmm. in that kitchen, that scene you're talking about. Yeah. What is going on here? It's beautiful, just beautiful. In that scene, we find out, I think we found out before that the wife also doesn't feel seen, heard, and understood by her husband. They once hugged in the moonlight. They once probably had a vivacious sex life, but everything now is kind of, eh, like ho hum. You know, there ain't anything just happening. Just tied up so tightly wound that, like, right? No one's no one's connecting about anything. And the wife admits something that probably is very hard for a spouse to admit, which is, I was always a bit jealous of your relationship with our child. Remember, she says that. She yeah. goes, you were always, it was like daddy's little girl and daddy talking, and you never spoke to me that way. Mm. Okay. That is the definition of a triangle. What's a triangle? Two people get into a conflict about something, they can't resolve it, and they bring in a third. That is the perfect definition of a parental focus on a child and the other spouse is in the outside position. And when a spouse is in the outside position, not always, but a lot, it is a very uncomfortable position to be in. You're in the kitchen, you see your child, and you see your spouse laughing it up, yucking it up, sharing stories, and you feel like, hello, where, where do I fit into this? It's a very uncomfortable position. What Bowen said right. is the person in the outside position will either become very sick or try to reposition themselves on the inside and push the other person out and be, right. create a lot of tension. So it's such a beautiful scene. So the, 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 um, the wife says, uh, no, no, the daughter, no, that's what's so beautiful. So the husband and the wife have this thing, okay? So they're distant. The father it was once overly focused on his daughter, but now there's this tension there. So he's losing that, right? And she and the daughter says, um, and oversteps a boundary and touches a sensitive point and says, well, you don't, what was it? What was the line? You don't says something to, like, you don't listen to her. Why would you listen to me? Referring right. to her mother, his wife. Like, you don't, right. listen, if you don't even listen to your wife, why would you listen to anything I say? Exactly. And at that point, I don't know if you. I, I don't know if I'm depicting this properly. With if I was drawing this out, it would be better. The triangle shifts, as Bowen says, from father and daughter right. to mother and daughter against father. And whenever a triangle shifts like that, you you better get ready for some sort of violent reaction. Wow! You see, that's what I think is important to understand about the scene. Mm. The scene is typical of a movie, but 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 if you understand the theory, it's beautiful because we can see it in our own lives. Whenever you reposition yourself in a triangle, so now the father's on the outside position, he is not going to go kindly into the night. Right. 
And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's I think fair. where the slap came from. The slap was that there's a reorientation and I'm in the outside position and I don't know what to do with it. See, at least the mother was used to it, but the father was never used to it. And yeah. now mother and daughter are aligned against me. Um, and so it, it was the beginning of what I would say is the turbulence of a shift in the family system to provide um, the soil for change. But what I tell my clients when they come in is they'll say like, oh, we can't wait to start therapy. And we're so excited. We finally can do therapy. And I said, well, are you prepared for things to get worse before they get better? Oh, no, no, no. We're ready. Like we've read the books. People don't understand that what always precipitates change, like 95% of the time, is a lot of turbulence and a lot of pushback to bring things back to the way they once were. Yeah. What, what was it? Moses in the desert and everyone complaining? Yeah. Let's go back to Egypt. Why did you, it was so much better where we were, you know, as slaves. It's the same, <laughs> it's the same thing in our relationships. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, th- my understanding of, of, of a lot of this kind of stuff was, you know, Ren was the catalyst in the community, right? Enough of a change agent to have to 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 um, uh, serve as a way of mucking up the um, the homeostasis the stuckedness yeah and um, and it's amazing how the 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 system the how all the energy flowed through all these relationships to create a cascade in a way mm-hmm. of possible change um, and uh, and and look you have to credit also the the filmmakers and the writers to you know um, with respect to uh, how they depict uh, marital conflict and in marriage as with David Snarch the late David Snarch by the way Dr David Snarch died um, last month um, the late David Snarch said uh, marriage could be could be a people growing machine because the right. husband could hear his wife. He could hear her and he could hear her, I think, because she wasn't nagging him. She wasn't screaming at him. She wasn't belittling him. The way she spoke to him yeah, was really stern, beautiful. but soft, stern, but clear, right. stern without threats. She wasn't saying, I'm going to leave your ass. If you... <laughs> she wasn't right. saying yeah. that. And I think it's just a beautiful, uh, just all of that stuff was just a beautiful depiction of, and one last thing, I just have to say one last thing, Ellie, let's, we'll, we'll open this up here. You know what I love about this film too? They didn't make the preacher to be some backwater, uh, uh, um, irredeemable character. He never lost yeah. his spirituality. Like in so many yeah. films, like the, the preacher's eyes get awoken to the, the secular oh, ways he was of the like, world. He was very erudite. He was clearly open and educated. He's listening to Haydn. He knows exactly like he was very um, cultured in many ways, you know, so I think it was a much more nuanced portrayal of, say, somebody who's, you know, coming down on the more conservative or hard end of things. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Also, I noticed that. And, the, you know, the film ends with him a beautiful example of how l- good leadership, strong leadership um uh, requires humility mm. and the ability to listen to different opinions measure them against your own and see if there's something there and orient yourself to change not abandon your principles he doesn't end the film with thinking oh my son died god doesn't exist that's not how right. the film ends that's not right. how the film ends the film ends with him sitting there thinking a tragedy happened in this community and we're, we, we are all adopting a, an understandable but a maladaptive approach to burning and banning and doing all this kind of stuff when we have to mourn. Um, and um, and uh, he doesn't abandon his his principles of a God and prayer. And, and you know, I just I really love the way the film ends mm. uh, in that way. It's rare. I, you don't see it that often. But um, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I also think, you know, it's it's a shame we didn't get a chance to talk so much about Ren, because I think his character is so unique in uh, one of the most unique characters I think I've seen in a, in a film in terms of he's actually quite mature and evolved in many ways. And the reason that he gives his mother for wanting to do this dance, you know, where she says, like, why? Why are you doing? Why are you causing like all this? you know, that he gives this actually very well thought through mature answer. And, and I think he's a unique character in that in the end, when he goes to speak to the council, what he brings is a spiritual argument. You know, he brings a language that they can understand and that they can relate to. So he speaks to them in their language to present his view, which is such a, such a wonderful way of addressing two opposing sides well can we speak each other's language at least 
and try to find a common ground of understanding. And I thought that was really quite something. Yeah, it's interesting. I sort of I sort of see this a little bit differently. So let me throw this at you and tell me what you think. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that, um, uh, I, yeah, we we don't have time to get to all of Rent's character. Um, but uh, one thing that stood out for me is it like so many of these films, how they handle divorce. I find mm -hmm. is um, uh, a popular uh, understanding cause and effect, but I just don't find it is uh, true. And not only true, it, it quite harmful to teenagers. So Ren, Ren's understanding is dad just woke up one day left. Yeah. He says That's it even happened. to the preacher. He's like, we just, I don't understand what happened. Yeah, just left. Your son just, died yeah. and my dad left. Yeah. Now um, I've worked with enough cases of divorce and enough cases of marriage that um, I, I've, I just come to understand marriage, the good and the bad is reciprocal, that there is two human beings and they are both contributing to something. And the cause effect is either you stay together, you split up, but it is two human beings doing this. There's a lot of theory that backs this up, but that is my understanding. The problem for Ren is that if he uh, leaves, and, and unfortunately the mother never corrects him, right? She never says, actually, right. your dad didn't just leave. Like there's none of that, now it's a film, okay? But the problem right. for all the Rens of the world, and I work with young people like this is, a lot of women actually come into my office like this, is that they, 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 they develop this, this real deep sense of, if you're just not lucky, people just leave. Yeah. Like it just, that's all it is. There's people who stay, and there's people who leave. And it's a very, very um, existentially uh, discomforting feeling because then you have to do something to keep the person from leaving. So it gets right. a real, it gets really more. So I think that was a problem in terms of- um, uh, Right, that the leaving is randomized rather than it being purposeful and meaningful and understandable and- and, and that they equate right. the two, that, that the young person who dies tragically on the thing, just sometimes young people die and some people, sometimes your parent just leaves and, and leaves you to be on your own right. with your mother. Which um, is interesting because if you think about the other films we've talked about, like Pretty in Pink, you know, same thing, like her mom just leaves, you know, and they're never really given, we're never really given a reason, like you never, you know, we hear a little bit about it, but a lot of these films, like the it's a bit like, like as if the parents' world is just utterly alien and different to the kids. Like you're just sort of like functioning in the same space, but not actually understanding anything about each other. Well, look, I think it touches on two cultural things that people are comfortable with, but are just, I, I, I happen to think are, well, it's gonna sound very strong, but false. The first thing is that cut off is okay if you upset me. So cutting off family members that they have different political views. By the way, this is all over the place. Right. I'm not making, I mean, it's all over the place. I've yeah. heard politicians Especially say after this. these elections. Yeah, yeah I've heard therapists say this. Anybody heard, anymore, <laughs> Ellie? I've heard. I've heard people in our own community. I've heard rabbis say this. You know, if someone holds a certain viewpoint in your family, it's absolutely your right to cut them out of your life. And I hold my head going, "What are you doing?" But anyway, right. so it's culturally acceptable. Um, and also, what also is culturally acceptable is to view relationship as cause and effect. Angels and devils. I do things to you poor you like my understanding which is completely informed by systems theory is that everything is reciprocal and that we are both doing a dance as harriet Lerner says we do a dance and somehow that dance produces certain results right. the problem for ren is going to be when he gets into a relationship later on what happens when the going gets tough the only model he knows is that one of us has to leave or just will leave so it's a problem the second thing i would say um is, uh, oh, what did you uh, what was that last bit um oh right 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 you know it's interesting. When did Ren get through to the preacher? I actually didn't find it was when he quoted the Bible. I actually thought it was quite manipulative because it was the daughter who brought him the Bible and said, yeah. hey, hey, hey. And by the way, Ellie, you know, I, oh, I don't know. This is a whole can of worms. We're not, we're not going to go there. <laughs> I find that happens a lot with um, people who are not religious, trying to convince religious people of it. They'll, they'll, they'll cherry pick parts of the right. Bible and try to do an I gotcha. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. It's like, I got, see, in Leviticus, gotcha. Right. Yeah. And you're never going to win. You're right. never going to win an argument like that because everybody can smell that from a million miles away. Right. So I actually found when he did that, it, it, it felt, felt a little manipulative. When he got through to the preacher is when he spoke from his heart. He right. wasn't cherry picking Bible passages. He spoke about his father. He spoke about loss. Mm. He spoke about. And that's when the preacher was like, I get you. You get me. We don't have to agree on this. 
Okay, but I hear you. I'm not so sure the preacher heard him at that point. He actually well, that off, didn't, honestly, that, as a pompous teenager. I that think. speech didn't the the council still voted against him. That speech exactly. didn't work. Exactly. I, I think for me it was just interesting because he didn't just get up there and yell at them for having backwards views. You know what I mean? He didn't ah, you guys are all jerks and this is, you know, the religion is such a blah blah and like you know, kind of storm out of the place. Like you should be giving us what we want. Like he tried to find a place. Like I think even had it, even though it had a manipulation to it, she brought it to him because she was like, this is the language they speak. You need to understand the language that they're speaking in order to address this. But you're right. What actually made the dance happen was when they sat down and spoke about this, both of them having this experience of loss. Because Ellie, we, after that scene that he then stands up and says, okay, there's going to be a dance. Do we have five more minutes or, or, or what do you think? Uh, I'm good for another five if you're good. I got to share something with you. And I, I, I was going to save this for something else, but it's just so appropriate. We can, we can come back to this. This is a true story, by the way, I'm going to tell you. Um, I was working in Vancouver and we did a, a lunch and learn with our with colleagues at different we had we had a, a sister site and so we would have these things where the staff would come together and we would um have uh sort of like a lunch and like a professional development type thing mm -hmm. so each of us would go in turn and at the time i was getting really disenchanted with a certain um uh, intolerance amongst my therapeutic colleagues but they see therapists never see themselves as intolerant because they're therapists and we we have empathy and we so but i knew it was false it was totally fake okay and therapists are so caught in their bubble that they don't even know how intolerant they are so i thought i'm gonna get them and boy did my experiment work just worse than i thought so i thought here's what i'm gonna do it was my turn to do the training and what i did was i took uh, passages of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as people call it, the Bible. But what I did is I took out the thou and the thou, and I just put it in secular language of statements. Mm. And um, uh, what I said was, uh, so all my colleagues were sitting there and I said, uh, and remember, we're all friends and everything is like, you know, um, we're friends and we're all professionals. And I said, I'm going to read you some lines from um, uh, some statements from a, a, a family I was working with. And I'm curious how you would work with them. I didn't tell them it was coming from the Bible. I just said, so I put like, you know. Um, I'm dying to hear what you said and what happened now. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. So I, I, so I said, so I said, well, you know, the father came into my, I'm, I'm not sure what to do about this because the father came into my office and said their child is gay um, and that, and I didn't say stoning my death, but I said something kind of like similar, you know, and I, and at first, people were kind of like squirming in their seat, and they're like, "Well, this is how I would work." And and then finally, I I didn't plan this, by the way. Remember, again, all of these people see themselves as very tolerant, right? Very tolerant, and all ideas are 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 acceptable in my clinical practice. At one point, one of the one of the one of my colleagues stood up. No, no, no. When I got, got angry and said, you know, I have to tell you, um, I, I think that we have to have lines here. There are certain families I don't think we can work with. And then someone else, by the time I was finished, uh, one of my colleagues got up in tears, left the room. One, and I, I, we had to dial it down. I had to explain what was happening. Someone told me that I should be calling the police. I mean, it was really sort of fascinating. My point is this. Um, especially when it comes with religious people, there is a bias. There is a bias. There's a reason why I find religious people are hesitant to go to therapists sometimes because they are concerned about a bias. The bias is real. This is not in their heads. It's not neurotic. So what I tell people, especially people who are more on the religious side of things, when you go to therapy, buyer beware, do your homework. There is no such thing as a valueless therapist. There is no such thing as a therapist. They're just human beings. And so when you are choosing therapy and you are exposing the most vulnerable parts of yourself, be sure to do your homework in terms of who you're going to be sharing the most vulnerable parts of your life with. I could tell you right now, if you take your, your, uh, uh, with these, some of these people I was working with in Vancouver, if you were an old order Amish person or a Hasidic person, and you started disclosing some of the, I could tell you right now that some of my colleagues would not be able to contain their own sense of reactivity and probably would do more harm with these families than good. Mm -hmm. If you're going to speak 
the language, the lingua franca of a religious person. You have to understand the community. You have to understand right. the heartbeat. You have to understand the laws and the culture and the theology. Right. Um, anyways, I had to share that with you because it was a real thing, a real experiment. I tried it. It went much crazier than I thought right. would happen. Um, and um, anyways, so there we go, Ellie. <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I think it's just important to always understand that even when you're speaking to people who are experts in their field, that they are also going to have their personal opinions about things. And depending on their level of anxiety around those opinions, they're not necessarily going to be able to stop themselves from injecting those opinions into their advice. And the only so thing I would say, though, knowing, is that you got to know that going in, like that's, that's how it's going to work. That's true. The only thing I would say is, though, I, I expect more of a social worker, psychologist or psychiatrist than I do a garage mechanic with respect to these issues. And it is shocking, shocking to me how often uh, therapists are so open to professional development so long as it fits within a certain uh, framework. It's a problem at the college level. It's a problem at, in academia. Um, anyways, buyer beware. Be careful what you get yourself involved with, with whatever healers you uh, invite into your life. Okay, good. Okay, Ellie, do, we, do we need to do one more session on this to talk a bit more about Ren, or do you think we should move forward? You, you know, I think I, I think that you know there are so many archetypes of Ren um, in different films. Uh, right. You know, Ellie, you and I have talked about this. One day, God willing, the vaccine will will be here, and we will be in person and you and I will take all of these podcasts and, and do an amazing year long parenting <laughs> workshop where we really can sit down and have open conversation. I mean, how exciting it, yeah. all the, all the material we're producing will become one day like a, a year, two year long workshop about culture and parenting, you know, so we can really get into it, but let's keep going right. through the, there were so many films that were. I know it's true. Okay, fine. We'll have to pick the next one. All right. So we'll go through the posts for those of, uh, for those of you who are listening on Facebook or listening on the podcast, uh, both Avram and I are on Facebook. We post each week and we've been asking people for their recommendations. So we have some really good recommendations on deck. Uh, we'll decide which one we're going to do next week. Um, but please, we want to hear from everyone. And if you do get a chance to hear the podcast, please subscribe and recommend it to friends. We want to um, we, we want to hear everyone's feedback. And um, we're just enjoying doing this. So we're going to keep going. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Avram. This is awesome. See you next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye.